I want, uh, hopefully you're still there. We're in Matthew chapter 13 tonight. I want to uh, focus on these two parables as Pastor Nathan uh, sort of hinted at that I believe uh, I'm correct in saying that these are two of the shortest parables in all of Scripture. And what I wanted to do is I want to expound both of these, but before I do that, I kind of wanted to jump off and sort of talk about the parables as a whole sort of in general. Because I think that the parables represent very much a, an abiding, we could say, a very uh, constant source of difficulty for anyone who is trying to read Scripture, to become familiar with Scripture, who is studying Scripture. The parables will come about as sort of confusing, if not even sometimes cumbersome passages. Jesus uses these to represent something else, to represent truth that is perhaps hidden or something like that. But they, the parables themselves are very, very familiar passages of Scripture. In fact, perhaps one of your favorite chapters contains parables all the way through. In fact, I know one of mine is, Luke 15, it's parable after parable after parable. They're familiar stories, stories that are celebrated, stories that are favorited and Often is the case, uh, perhaps you already know where I'm going with this, because uh, often how we understand parables is, is, is what, right? Our, our definition is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I think time and again, that's how we understand that. And I think that's pretty good. I think that's a pretty good way to uh, generally go at the parables. But I think sometimes, at least in my experience, the, uh, the way in which we can interpret the parables can sometimes veer a little bit into the realm of almost fables or, or, or allegories. Almost as if this were Jesus' version of Aesop's fables. You know, if you remember Aesop's fables, that collection of stories in which uh, whoever was writing them, I guess, is Aesop. I don't really know who wrote all the Aesop. Aesop. Um, anyways, he, all these stories that he wrote, and they, they were meant to have this picture or scene or scenario in which you were able to derive some sort of moral lesson. For some reason, the only one that's popping up into my head, and I don't know if this is appropriate, is the one where the king doesn't know that he doesn't have any clothes on. Um, for, that's the only one that's coming to my head right now. Um, but regardless, there's all sorts of fables and allegories in which we are made to learn some type of moral lesson. And I think sometimes that's the way in which we approach the parables of Christ. In which every story that he tells has a hard and fast line where this means that. And here's the way in which you are able to glean all of the ways in which this person, place, or thing points to a deeper, more spiritual person, place, or thing, or what have you. But actually, I, I, I sort of think that the parables aren't always meant to be understood in a very black and white sort of this means that sort of way. Because the parables are not allegories. Um, and they can't always be understood so patly, if I can use that word, so matter-of-factly. For example, uh, this is a planned sort of rabbit trail, so it's, it's, it's purposeful. Um, but if you go to Matthew chapter 20, one of the most, I would say, famous parables in which this is true, where you can't allegorize it, I think comes here. Where Jesus is giving this parable of the workers who come into the vineyard. 
If you remember that story, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And on he goes, down through verse 16, perhaps you remember the story, in which he hires at five different times of the day, five different groups of workers to come back and toil in his vineyard. Each group works successively less amount of time in the day. And of course, at the end of the workday, all of the laborers come to receive their paycheck, the agreed upon wage, uh, which they sort of cleared with the householder before they went into the vineyard. And they receive this paycheck, and lo and behold, they all get paid the same. Every laborer gets the same amount of money. Whether you worked five hours or eight hours or 30 minutes, you all got paid the same. If you take this story allegorically then, how do you sort of make sense of this vineyard owner's, if I can say this, less than ethical business sense? (laughs) Which is just to say, we're not meant to take away from this story the fact that Jesus is commending this vineyard's owner's payroll practices. That's not what he's trying to do. He's not trying to say, if you own a vineyard, this is how you should do it or anything like that. He's not doing something like that. He, he's actually meant to, uh, to convey a very deeper truth, a very uh, much more profound truth, which is just this outrageous freeness of the favor of God, which lets in, yes, the long and tired worker who's, as they complain in that parable, they've been out toiling for uh, all hours in the heat of the day. And yes, the 11th hour worker they all are received with the same amount of favor. It's a story that has a way deeper meaning. You can't just allegorize it, which is just to say, I think that the parables don't always have a a one-to-one ratio of this thing means that thing. And that's even, yes, understanding that on occasion Jesus does do that. In fact, in the text that we're in, Matthew chapter 13, in two different instances, he does that. In verses 18 through 23, he takes a little bit of time and explains the parable of the sower to his apostles. And then in verse 36 through 43, he takes a little bit bit of time and explains the wheat and the tares to them too. You can notice that that he does that specifically, but I would say very adamantly that those are the exception and not the rule. More often than not, Jesus left off explanations. He didn't always take everyone aside and be, here's what I meant by what I just said. Actually, what's the phrase that he often uses when he's teaching to people in large crowds? He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. In fact, Over a half a dozen times, he uses that exact phrase, often in conjunction with telling a parable, with using one of these illustrations to reveal the truth about himself, about his his father, or about the kingdom itself. He wasn't always forthright, we could say. He wasn't always clear. And I, I think it's not because he wanted to be sly. Jesus is not being coy. He's not being uh, sort of uh, callous or he's not being even, we could say, irresponsible with the truth that he was called and commissioned by his heavenly father to proclaim. Actually, I think he does this in a way. He's not forthright. 
Because I think what he's doing and what he has done from the very start is drive a very clear wedge between the ultimate categories in which all people will find themselves in, either in the category of faith or the category of unfaith. Remember when, I think it's in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus reveals that he has not come to bring peace but a sword. And that that sword, I think, that he draws is a sword which drives a wedge or we could say pierces that very notion that there's multiple categories of people. And and sort of what was hinted at this morning, there's multiple roads that that lead into glory. And I would say, no, there's only two categories of people, those who believe and those who don't. And when he is using these illustrations using these parables to talk about the truth of heaven, the truth about the kingdom, he is dividing people into both of those categories, faith and unfaith. He's clearly delineating that for us. Which is just to say this, that I think a better way to understand or make sense of the parables, all of those ones that we know and love, is to view them not as allegories. They're not Jesus' version of Aesop's fables, Actually, I think they're very truly, much more truly revelations. They are revealing something that has either A, been there all along, or A, or B, we could say, revealing something with which will come about very soon. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. The Son of God, as we could say, is bringing about many apocalypses. That's what apocalypse means, right? It's a, it's a revealing, it's an uncovering. That's that word that's used in the book of Revelations in the first chapter. It's this unveiling about the truth about the Heavenly Father and how what's, what's been the plan from the beginning, Colossians 1.20, that he is reconciling all things to himself. And also we could say very clearly, as it's repeated throughout Scripture, from before the foundation of the world. Actually, go with me to a couple passages where this is revealed. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Just, you can get a sense of how indicative this truth is. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 4. A very familiar passage. Paul writing, well, I'll read verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Wow. Here, Paul was hinting at, I think, what Jesus was everywhere revealing, that the work of God, as it says here, from before the foundation of the world, was to make a way in which we were accepted by who? By the beloved, in the beloved, namely Christ. Peter gets at this too. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, he references the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 18. Peter writes, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by, your, by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
as of a lamb without blemish and spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Who by him to by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Before the foundation of the world, and we won't go there, but Revelation 13 verse 8 calls Christ the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Which is just to say the parables uh, most explicitly, but everywhere where Jesus is preaching, this is what he's revealing. He's revealing this, we could say hidden, this concealed plan of God in which he was reconciling all things to himself, Colossians 1.20, that before the foundation of the world, he was the lamb that would bring all the people who believe to himself. That, I think, is what the parables do. It's a... It's a revelation of that massive, that expansive, that huge, and if I dare say, cosmic mission of God to remake the cosmos and redeem his people. He brings that into down-to-earth language. (laughs) That's why he's using pictures that are ordinary, talking about seeds and sowers and farmers and, and fishermen. He's talking about this massive space expanding mission of the Godhead to, yes, redeem the cosmos from the evil of sin that has splintered and fractured the creation of God. He's talking about all of that in ways in which people were familiar, talking about seeds and and fish, and here in our text, pearls and treasure and dirt. (laughs) That's what he's doing. What an amazing sort of glimpse into this Jesus, the teacher, who's bringing such heavenly truths in, yes, into earthly means and languages and words. And I think along with that, coupled with that amazing idea of bringing staggering truth down to earth, is also this idea that I think many of the parables, especially here in our text, which I would say is, I think, the most uh, concentrated collection of parables of the kingdom, especially, as you'll note, I think of some 13 times in this particular chapter that Jesus begins, the kingdom of heaven is like this. That I think what he's doing, especially here, is he's pushing back against some of the common ideas regarding this kingdom. As you may or may not know, Jesus was a a very prominent teacher who began uh, being recognized as the Messiah, but then he was, it was even more confused and and frustrating for people of his day because he wasn't doing things that that the Messiah that they had read about was supposed to do. He was a very surprising sort of Messiah in that way. He wasn't hobnobbing with the Pharisees. He was hanging out with, with sinners. He was even accused of uh, imbibing in sin himself. I think it's Matthew something. Uh, it's off the top of my head. I think it's Matthew 10. I don't remember where it is. But they call him a wine bibber and a glutton. This is, 
this reputation. And you can see, just put yourself in the Pharisees' shoes. You know, you're these scholars of the law of the Old Testament. And you know that all throughout it, there's this Messiah who's going to come. And in your minds, it's this guy who's going to come and bring back Israel from out of the depths and depravity of enslavement. And bring them back up to the heights of world dominance and power and supremacy. This is the Messiah. And yet here's this Jesus who has done Messiah-like things. And he's hanging out with people who are pariahs. Social outcasts. It didn't make sense. I think this is what Jesus does. One particular writer, I liked how he put it, was just the idea that the parables, through the parables, Jesus was almost rubbing salt into the wounded interpretations of the religious elite. If you've ever put salt in a wound, you know it doesn't feel good. (laughs) But that's essentially what he's doing. He's putting salt in to sort of make it a little bit uncomfortable for those in Jesus' day who who are standing sort of in behind lecterns and in front of people saying that they know the things of the law. And Jesus came about saying basically through the parables, you think the kingdom of God is like that? Let me tell you what it's really like. Let me, let me give you a glimpse into what the kingdom of heaven is really all about. The parables, one writer says, upend all our notions of a God who plays by our rules. And I think that that's very true. Because they show us a different glimpse of this God that we think we know. You think that God is like a father who's going to reprimand his wayward son? No, our God is like a father who welcomes his wayward son with open arms and runs and kisses him and brings him back into the fold and welcomes him with just incredible, outrageous favor. That's what our God is like, Jesus says. (laughs) He's like a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep to go after one. Who goes after this lost coin. He does everything he can to find it and bring it back. It's a God who doesn't play by our schemes, by our systems. And you can see then what the parables are doing and why Jesus used them the way he did. He wanted, he wanted to frustrate the supposed interpretations of the day. He wanted to clear a way to, to say, it's sort of like Matthew chapter 5. Remember Matthew chapter 5 where he's standing and, and preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And he's saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And that's essentially what he's doing through, the, through these parables. Which is just a big introduction to these two here tonight. In Matthew chapter 13, 44 and 46. Let me read them again to you. It says, Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for the joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. These parables are... Not only some of the shortest, but I think they're some of the most confounding that Jesus ever told as well. Case in point, I've 
been reading a lot about these parables of the kingdom and these two in particular. And I, I think the more, <laughs> this is one of those instances where the more I read, the more kind of frustrated I got. Because there was more and more ideas of what these different things the people places and things of these parables can mean and what they are trying to represent all of which just revealed were really perplexed by this particular section of Jesus's teachings in short there's a wide range of solutions and explanations for these two brief little stories if you can call them stories But I would say most often, most of the common ways in which these parables are explained or sort of made sense of, if you will, they put you and I at the center of them. You and I are the man in verse 44 who discovers the treasure of the gospel of God, so to speak. And because this treasure is so valuable, we hide it. We We put it away to preserve it, so to speak. And there's many who go off on these really long extended explanations for the ways in which those in the first century Eastern world wouldn't have banks or treasuries to put their money in so they would bury treasure and so on and so forth. And perhaps that is so. Or you and I are the merchant in verses 45 and 46, who is on the hunt for some very fine pearls, who after finding this priceless pearl of the gospel, sells everything to get it. That's how they're usually told. With both of these parables then, sort of having this way in which you can understand them, that you and I are the seeker and the finder of this truth of the gospel, with the value of that gospel being the point. The gospel is worth it. Sell all that you have to get it. Sell all that you have to keep it. It's worth all of that. You see, our response then is the primary application that comes out of these two stories. We better do all that we can, sell all that we have to get this gospel for ourselves, whatever it costs. There's no other treasure like it. There's no other pearl like it. There's no truth that compares to this which we get in the gospel of God. In fact, one of the commentators, lecturer from the 1800s, Richard Trench, says, quote, Obtain the truth at any price and let no price tempt you to part with it. That's usually how these parables are explained. And I think, I think there's some merit to that. Obviously, the gospel is worth it. It's worth all of that and more. It's worth whatever we have to sell, whatever we have to give up, and all of those things. I think there is some truth there. But when I was studying in the last several weeks these particular parables, I had one question that just kept running in my mind over and over and over again which is just this when have you and I ever been the center of the story that God purposes to tell because I don't I when Jesus is telling stories he doesn't put you and I at the center it's usually himself 
He's talking, he's revealing the truth about himself. That's why he is the son of God who has come to reveal, again, we could repeat what I said earlier, uh, the truth behind the truth, which is just that God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. And this is what he's been doing from before the foundation of the world. That's why he's telling all these stories. That's why he's using scripture and history to reveal that kind of what we went into this morning in Sunday school. That every time the promise of God was rejected, the promise of God was fulfilled because God's promises work unilaterally with God's people. (laughs) This is a recurring theme throughout the Bible, which is just to say that I am sometimes a little bit wary of interpretations where you and I are put square in the middle of the point of the story. Because we're not the point. We're not the hero. We're not meant to be uh, the, the prevailer, the succeeder, the, the overcomer, all that kind of stuff. And we, don't get me wrong, I want to be. I want to be the David. And we turn the story of David into a parable sometimes or an allegory. I want to be the center. I want to, I want to have that attention. I want to have that, uh, that idea that I am the one in whom I'm trying to uh, be, uh, that I need to emulate on all those, all those sorts of things. But again, God's purposes in redemption and reconciliation don't ultimately have you and I at their heart. Why does God redeem the world and reconcile the cosmos? Because God is glorified through it. He gets glory through redeeming people that don't deserve to be redeemed. This is that, in 1 Peter chapter 1, I think it's verse 10, where he talks about, this is the thing that the angels desired to look into. They were curious about what? That people who for thousands of years have thwarted God's plans and God's purposes would be able to get a glimpse of this thing called grace, which the angels know nothing of. They're curious about this. Horatius Bonner, I don't have this quote in my notes, but I know that he says, I think it's in his wonderful book called The Story of Grace, which he talks about the fact that this is the way that God reveals more of his true nature and character by revealing his grace for his creation, which is just to say, this is how God reveals his truest glory. Which again, reserves the center of the story that God is telling for God himself. He's aiming to show how this plan of reconciliation, redemption, allows him to be, as Paul says in Romans 3.26, the just and the justifier of those who believe. (laughs) How does that make sense? God should cast us off. God, by rights and his holiness, should just snuff out this world without a second thought. But he doesn't. Why? Because he's getting glory through redemption and reconciliation of people who deserve nothing, just the entire opposite of that. This is what this this is the, the story that is being told that the Son of God is revealing. And so if all of that is true. If we're not the center of the story that God tells, that Jesus reveals, how should we interpret these parables? 
I like to interpret I like to, I have come to interpret them this way then. I think <laughs> that this idea that the, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure hidden in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for the joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth the field. Christ. Christ the Redeemer is the purchaser, i.e., the Redeemer, which is what that word buyeth means. He's the buyer of the field who finds a treasure trove of sinners in a world who that is wrecked with ruin and rebellion. He buys the whole field. In the middle of all of that wreckage, the weeds and the soot, in the middle of all of that, he notices us enough and he treasures us enough that he would visit us we could say, Psalm 8, verse 4, enough that he would sell all that he had to purchase us for himself. It is Christ giving himself to us. A.J. Ironside, the famous orator, says it like this, quote, The seeker is Christ who came from the throne of glory to this poor world, seeking for jewels to adorn his crown forever. And at Calvary, he sold all that he had and bought the field, which is the world. And at the cross, he literally impoverished himself to purchase the church as his own choice pearl. To go along with another one, he says, quote, Christ is the merchant who to secure that kingdom to us and make it ours, though he was so rich, gladly made himself poor, buying that pearl and that treasure, not indeed for himself, but for us. You see that hidden treasure, that priceless pearl that is unearthed by this merchant who's on the hunt for it, I believe is sort of a reference to that mysterious kingdom of heaven that's been at work all along and all throughout history. There's so many different references. I wish I could go to them all. I think there's roughly, roughly a dozen, mainly through the Apostle Paul who talks about this mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel that is revealed in Christ. It's this mystery of this promise that here Jesus is talking about. That this kingdom is coming about because he is the son of God. And he's buying the field, so to speak. (laughs) And on the surface, this mystery has been so hidden, so buried, as he has here talked about, as to appear non-existent. It references that promise made to the people of Israel. Who... Throughout all of their annals of history, you could examine, it would appear at some times that that promise was insincere, perhaps untrue. Just remember how many times the people of Israel were enslaved or persecuted and oppressed, and yet they still clung to the promise of this mysterious blessing that would come through the seed. They were clinging to the promise, all inherent to this mysterious kingdom that God was working all throughout the ages. And God says to the people whom he treasures, the very people of Israel, that yes, you can cling to it because my word is true. And yet, what do we believe through all of that, that despite all of those moments 
We can say this because we're on the other side of it. All those moments of turmoil and turbulence and doubt that this mysterious kingdom of God that was coming about by God's promises was safe and sound, not because of his people, but because of one person, Christ. The mystery of the kingdom is safe because of Christ, because Christ has bought the field. (laughs) He secured it. He secured it of himself because from before the foundation of the world, 2 Corinthians 5.19, he was reconciling all things to himself. This promise was hidden, yet God unearthed it. God in Christ unearthed this mysterious kingdom which comes about, which I would say definitely is the church, That those who believe by faith are God's treasured people. And at the right time, we could say in the same language as Galatians 4, when the fullness of time was come, this mystery of the kingdom would be manifest for all to see. I think that's what Jesus is here revealing He's giving us a glimpse into the way God works. He, he's the seeker and the finder. The treasure that is so, the pearl that is so, the coin that is so, the sheep that is so. He is the father who looks from the balcony of heaven waiting for his wayward son. He's the seeker and the finder. Gracious Boner, my, again, one of my favorite writers, he says this, quote, From first to last, God pursues the sinner as he flies from him, and he pursues him not in hatred, but in love. Pursues him not to destroy, but to pardon and to save. From the beginning of time, from the beginning of his creation, when man fractured it, Genesis 3, what role does God assume He is the seeker of those people who have rebelled. Remember what does he come asking to Adam and Eve? Where are you? (laughs) He was seeking and finding those whom he loved even after they failed. And it's been that way ever since. (laughs) He's seeking and finding those whom he loves to reveal them. Yes, you are my treasure. Not because we are so amazing and immaculate. We are treasured not because of us, but because of the one who treasures us. <laughs> That's the thought which ought to stagger us. It's the thought that brings us to our knees. It's the thought that I referenced earlier, Psalm 8, verse 4, that what is man that thou visited us? And we could say, uh, just in the same refrain, what is man that you would die for him? What is man that you would come and treasure us so much that you would buy the field? He doesn't just buy that little plot of land. He buys the entire acreage. See, when Jesus goes to the cross, he doesn't just die for a select group of people. He dies for the world. He pays for all the world's sins on that cross. That's what he does. 
Because he is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So that's why you and I can sing that beloved saw, that beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, I Once Was Lost But Now Am Found. Because we are the treasure that was lost, that Jesus on earth, because this is the promise, this is the, the, the whole plan that he's been orchestrating from the beginning. That's our testimony. We are lost, now found. Because Christ is the seeker and the finder. He's the redeemer. He's the buyer of the field. For me, that's what I love about scripture. It reveals that truth. That as we fly from him, he pursues us. He's that shepherd who goes after the one. (laughs) He's that woman in Luke 15 who... Un, he, who, who, who overturns her whole house to find the lost coin. And here he is, this hunter. Or as we could say in verse 45, this diver who goes down and finds that pearl of great price. This is what Christ has done for us. This is the Lord's word. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.